This is the Yara Crop Nutrition Podcast. Yara is the global leader in crop nutrition knowledge and the leading producer of quality fertilizer products. The podcast is intended to facilitate the transfer of knowledge for farmers and crop advisors, improving farm profitability and environmental sustainability. With Yara, knowledge grows. Welcome to another edition of the Yara Crop Nutrition Podcast. My name is Scott War. In today's episode, we're going to dive into the crucial but yet sometimes overlooked crisis in agriculture, the alarming rise in soil acidification. Joining us are two esteemed experts, Dr. Clayne Jones uh, from Montana State University. He's an extension soil fertility specialist. And Dr. Manbir Rakar, who is an assistant professor at Ohio State University. And as always, uh, Dr. Rob Mickelson, who's our director of agronomy here at Yara North America. And they're going to help us understand the significance of soil pH changes and some of the consequences that can come from that. Uh, and we're not just going to talk about numbers here. We're going to explore the real stories from the field's understanding and why our soils are suffering. So first of all, Clayne and Manbir, thank you for joining us. I'm going to shoot the first question over to Clayne. What is considered acid soil? What, when we say acid soil, what is that? You know, so technically it would be any soil that's under pH 7, but soils that are in the pH 6s and even high 5s, generally we don't see crop problems. So I like to think of about 5.5 as a, a cutoff. Below 5.5, we often start seeing reduced crop yields and sometimes other problems as well as, as not just yield losses, but other issues such as herbicide effectiveness, nitrogen fixation, things like that. So I use a 5.5 cutoff. Soil pH is very important for the effectiveness of, of a lot of the management decisions that we have. Um, what are some of the primary causes, Clayne, of, of this problem of soil acidification? Well, there's both natural causes such as high rainfall. We see low pH throughout the world in, in very high rainfall areas. Soils that formed from what I would call unbuffered rock, meaning mm. soils that can't keep the pH high, often will have this issue as well. And then there's human-caused uh, soil acidification issues. And, and the main one there is probably nitrogen fertilizer. When nitrogen fertilizer is applied to fields, it oxidizes in the presence of air. It produces nitrate, which plants want, and it also produces acid, which most plants do not want. Excellent. What, what are some of the early signs of this happening? What, what can we look out for to see if we're having a problem out in our fields? I would start with, if, if I would be a farmer and I go to a field and see unexplained plant issues, for example, low emergence, stunted plants, if it's a legume crop, nitrogen deficiency, or you go and see certain pockets have some unexplained herbicide damage, all these unexplained plant growth issues that you can visualize may be first indication of that your soil is actually acidic. And you can then confirm it with soil tests or not. We always encourage farmers to take soil tests and have their soils analyzed. And measuring soil pH is one of the routine measurements that is always done when you send a sample to the lab. So 
you may be having this acidification problem happening in your soil, but there may be other nutritional issues developing as well. So I would really recommend that you not wait until you see problems, but you do regular soil testing and keep an eye on that pH so you don't get into those problems that Menbeer is talking about. And Menbeer, if if we see something happening, what's the best protocol um, you know, if we're doing our normal soil sampling, of course, like Rob says, that's that's a, a great way to early identify. But if we see something that's not explainable, how, how, what's the best protocol to find out if that is the issue with our soil sampling? We just go to the area that that has the issue or do we need to compare that with other areas in the field? What's the best protocol? Great question. So, yes, soil testing is the gold standard protocol to test soil acidity. The thing with soil acidity is unlike soil salinity, if you have like soil salinity issue, you can go to the spot and see like salt sitting on there. It's visual. But when it comes to acidity issue, you can't really see it visually. So you have to take soil samples. Now, the issue with the soil test especially with the routine soil sampling protocol that we usually use, which involves taking zero to six inch samples and then also mixing or compositing soil across the field just to have like one sample sent to the lab. If we are following that kind of protocol, it's much less likely that we're going to identify soil acidity. Here's the reason why. So the soil acidity issue, what we have been observing, it's not uniform across the field. So according to our data, even like a 50 acre field can have soil is soil pH range ranging from like 4.9 all the way to like 7.3. Now imagine you go to one or two spots which are acidic and then mix that soil with other high pH soils that mixing when you when you send that mix sample to the soil lab acidity doesn't show up that's one thing second thing is the so, 0 to 6 in soil depth especially when we are talking about for example montana region where no till is prominent we have been observing that acidity is actually concentrated in upper 3 inches soil depth so again, the same mechanism. If you're sampling zero to six or zero to nine inches, what we have been observing that if you go down the soil profile, like three to six or six to nine, the pH increases. Again, the same principle. If you're taking zero to six and zero to nine, you're mixing high pH soil with low pH soil and sending that sample to the lab. So what comes out in, in the soil test results doesn't really show soil acidity, even though there are spots or there are soil depths that are really acidic. So what we recommend is if you do detect some kind of problematic areas, the recommended technique is sample zero to three inches and then do not mix the soil from problematic area with the good areas. So that's what we usually recommend to really characterize soil acidity. Great, great suggestion and, and good protocol. Um, I'm going to reference uh, a great video that we'll link in the show notes that uh, that Clayne uh, produced um, in Montana. And one of the things that, along with that that soil sampling, Clayne, is there are there probes that we can use in the field that can maybe help us identify these acidic areas? 
definitely. There's probes called pH sticks, is how I've heard them referred to, where instead of having a long wire and a nice, expensive piece of equipment like you might have in a lab, these can be purchased for about $100, and they're battery-operated, and you can go and dig down maybe two inches into the soil, add a little bit of distilled water that you can buy in a grocery store and stick your probe in. It might be off by maybe three-tenths of a unit, maybe even half a unit from the lab, but it will tell you, you know, if you have 4.5 pH, you have a you have a problem. And so it's a very quick and easy way to diagnose the issue. What are some of the immediate and long-term effects if we do find that some of these soil pH levels are a little low? What are some of the impacts on um, the crops and the surrounding area? So the number one impact is when the pH drops, especially when it drops like below 5.5, it releases aluminum into soil solution. Now, our soils are usually, they, they have a lot of aluminum, but they're not in soil solution form. So plants doesn't really experience that toxicity. But uh. when pHs are low, that aluminum gets into soil solution and it causes toxicity to plant roots, which results in stunted plants, poor root germination. When we have poor root germination, everything starts popping up whether it's nutrient deficiencies, they cannot grow and acquire the nutrients from the soil, they cannot get the waters. So all those kind of mechanisms starts to pop up. One thing. Another thing is if you are talking about legume crops that usually fix nitrogen from the atmosphere to fulfill their plant cycle, in acidic soils that rhizobium bacteria they are very sensitive to acidity as well. So their functioning is usually reduced in those situations. So even though it's a legume plant in your field, they will show nitrogen deficiency. It doesn't make any sense. That's happening because rhizobium can't really function because of that acidic environment. Other issues that we can visualize is herbicide chemistry is changed. There's much more herbicide carryover. You can observe herbicide injury there. Fungus really loves low pH soils, so you can have much more fungal disease occurrence in the fields. Those are some of the immediate uh, responses that you can see in your crop field. And then if we talk about the long term, all the immediate uh, effects that I talked about, they're going to result in lower crop yields. Now, when you have an area which is producing low crop yield year after year after year, what's happening? There is low activity of the root. Your soil health is degrading in that context. If you're producing low crop yield, you're not returning a whole lot of residue back into the soil. That means your soil is bare, and that is not good for soil health. The bare soil is prone to water erosion and wind erosion. Again, residue is not coming back to the soil. Organic matter can be reduced. So you get into this vicious circle of like low crop yields, no residue, low <laughs> organic matter, and it just goes on and on and on. So it's it's just overall bad for crop yields, bad for soil health, bad for even environment. 
Manbir, as you're as you're talking, I have a cash register um, um, ringing through my ears. Cha ching, cha ching, cha ching. This sounds really, really expensive. It sounds like it can be really expensive. Clean. Do you have any studies or any kind of um, um, uh, anecdotal um, stories where you can talk about what is the economic impact of of these low pH soils? Definitely. I mean, we've seen with our own eyes complete uh, crop yield loss, so no yield in certain parts of the field, maybe 50% yield on on other parts. Probably there's something called like similar to hidden hunger where we can't really see it, but it's it's happening. And so we think these losses are are very large. We think there might be half a million acres of low pH soil just in Montana. And, and again, this is a worldwide phenomenon. So you do the math on just a few bushels per acre less yield, and you multiply that times 500,000. In Montana, the yield losses are large. We, Manbeer and I, have worked with a farmer who we had lime strip trials on his field. He saw the benefits of lime, did some math, and decided he could purchase a very expensive lime spreader, and that lime spreader would pay for itself in about one year. That that gives an indication wow. of how much yield loss he was having and that mitigating it would pay for itself. Hey, Dr. Rob, um, I want to ask you, your, your expertise is in soil, the soil science part of this. Um, can you explain or elaborate on what Manbeer talked about as far as soil health and soil, how it affects that? Yeah, and we talk about both the soil and the plant health. And so one of the first pictures I saw when I started studying soil science was roots growing in acid soil. And they are stunted and twisted and just the ugliest roots you can think of because, as Manbeer was talking about, that acidity starts to dissolve some of the soil and releases that aluminum, which is very toxic to most roots. It's not a subtle thing. That, that acidity really is toxic for plants. People have been using limestone or ground lime rock on agricultural soils for hundreds of years. Maybe not knowing why they were doing it, but they knew that if they added this powdered rock onto soils, that the plants responded. And so we've, these acid soils are widespread throughout the world. And this is not something that we just discovered in Montana, but it's occurring in places where we never anticipated it before. I'm a native of California, and we thought we are never going to need lime in California because, as Clay mentioned, the geology and the, the properties of the soil we thought would never become acidic. But over time, as we'll get into, different things we've been doing to the soil has caused that pH to go down and down. So the plant health is affected. And then, as Menbeer mentioned too, that changes the microbial communities in the soil too, as you change from a, maybe a neutral pH and drop that pH down to six and then to five and then into the fours. All of a sudden, the bacteria are struggling to survive, and the, the fungal populations really take take off in a way that are not what was there before. So we affect the plant health, the soil health, the productivity. Lots of things change when we let that pH drop get out of hand. 
So I think awareness is probably the first step, right? We, we know that if we go out there and we see some unexplained areas in our fields that aren't doing real well, this could be one of the, the reasons. Um, then we can go out there with our, our little tiny probe that, uh, that Klain was talking about that you can get fairly inexpensively, um, maybe, maybe test a few areas, maybe send in some soil samples to Manbeer's protocol Let's say we find out that we do have low pH soils. Um, what are some ways that we can um, address these issues or even prevent these issues? Clay, I think you mentioned that that it's it's sometimes caused by um, misapplications of nitrogen. Uh, maybe we're not using the four R's of nutrient management when we're talking about nitrogen. What are some of the ways, Manbeer, from your standpoint, that we can maybe prevent this from happening? Um, yeah, so as you mentioned and, and Rob mentioned, if you have acidic soil and it's very acute problem, nothing is growing, then maybe you do need to put lime to reverse that acidity. Lime can increase your soil pH, but liming in itself is very expensive business. So just to prevent not to get to that point, it's very crucial. Whenever we get, talk to farmers and other agents, the very first thing that we stress is that liming can work. It can reverse your soil acidity, but it is very, very important to prevent that from happening. Now, how can we prevent soil acidification from happening? As Clean mentioned, that some of the causes we can't really tackle rainfall or fizz around parent material of soil, but we can change our agronomic practices. The number one cause why we are having acidification is nitrogen fertilizers. When they, when the nitrogen use efficiency is low, that's the moment when we really get into soil acidification issues. So to prevent soil acidification, you sh we should be investing into improving our nitrogen use efficiency. How you can do that? Do the soil test. Don't do the guesswork. If it's possible, do the soil testing in the spring. That will give you a better picture rather than sampling it in the fall. If you have visibility, go for split application of fertilizers. And also, not just how you use nitrogen fertilizer, even going for the crops or cropping systems that can in itself reduce fertilizer application, that would be great. An example to include legume crops like soybeans or some other kind of cover crops into cropping system that can reduce your fertilizer application. Uh, perennials are great in that context too, to prevent soil acidification from happening as well. Those are some of the ways that you can reduce or prevent or slow acidification from happening. Maybe I can ask Clint to expand on that just a little bit. It gets a little complicated because you get into the chemistry, but the nitrogen fertilizer, how does that cause acidity? And maybe the difference between nitrate and ammonium sources, and how does all that work in urea? Can you just explain how that acid production happens in the first place? Sure. So it's due to oxidation of what we call ammonium-based fertilizer. So this would be 
ammonium sulfate, ammonium phosphate, and, and also urea, also urea ammonium nitrates, anhydrous ammonium. Most nitrogen fertilizers are ammonium-based. There's a few that are, are nitrate-based. Those do not cause acidification. When ammonium, which has the chemical formula NH4, gets oxidized over to nitrate, it loses all those hydrogens. Half of those hydrogens, some of those hydrogens go into the soil, and it's hydrogens is what we are measuring with a pH probe. So the more hydrogens, the lower the pH. So you're right, Rob. There are fertilizers, calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate, that are already as oxidized as they can be. They do not release acid into the soil. So that's a naturally occurring process, though, it sounds like, that nitrification. Correct. So yep. just wondering if you can explain, well, if the nitrate fertilizers don't cause acidification, but the ammonium ones do, why don't all farmers use nitrate fertilizers? So the nitrate fertilizers that I have seen are generally two to maybe four times as expensive as the ammonium-based fertilizer. So it really comes down to cost. And when I've asked a few people, why are they so much more expensive? It takes a lot of energy. So the, the work that the microbes are doing for free for us, oxidizing ammonium over to nitrate, when we as humans do that, that takes far more energy. Far more energy means more cost. That, that, that was exactly the question I was going to ask, Rob. I was thinking, wait a minute, if we can avoid this oxidation process, maybe we can prevent it that way. But if, it, if it's a matter of cost, I guess it's you have to weigh the cost difference. Am I going to help prevent it by using maybe one of these nitrate-based fertilizers? Or am I going to be try to be more efficient with this ammonium-based um, fertilizers and, and hopefully have that oxidation process not uh, lower the pH in the soils? And if it does, then I guess I'm paying the, 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 the piper after the fact with some, some lime applications. <laughs> And, and nitrogen fertilizer is often one of the most expensive inputs in farming operations. So it's not an insignificant thing to say, well, just pay more. But there is a unintended price that Mandir was explaining to us in that slow acidification that happens that can poison your plants if you're not careful. In the in the video that I, I mentioned earlier that we have linked in the show notes, Dr. Klein um, introduces, I don't know if you coined this, this uh, acronym, but the MAP acronym, which is Manage, Adapt, Prevent. Can you go over that process a little bit to help us understand what MAP means? Yeah, so the M, I used it to be mitigate, but manage is close. Okay. Uh, so mitigate would mean when you have a really low pH, say 4.5 or lower, and you're seeing complete crop yield loss, it's really about all you can do. So that means likely applying lime, maybe applying manure, maybe applying perennials. Perennials are going to be a slow creep up on pH. So that's kind of the end of the road. Adapt would mean changing the crop. So selecting crops that are more tolerant to low pH. And those would be things like winter wheat is quite tolerant. Uh, the wheats in general are fairly tolerant. The legumes and the oil seeds are, are less tolerant. Some perennials are very tolerant. We found that intermediate wheatgrass is 
extremely tolerant, as is meadow brome. We have also found out that by applying phosphorus in the seed row, at least with durum wheat, we can have an effect that's similar to liming. That phosphorus ties up the aluminum in the soil and also in the roots and prevents the aluminum from making it to the shoot. So that's what I mean by adapt, changing crop or maybe adding phosphorus. And then the P for prevention is what Manbeer and I are really stressing because mitigation is so expensive, you'd prefer not getting to that point. So prevention is what we've already discussed, increasing nitrogen use efficiency any way that you can. You may have already stated this in the prevention phase, and maybe I didn't just didn't get through my thick skull, but Manbeer, is one of the prevention strategies crop rotation, especially when you're when you're farming uh, in a row crop situation, by going between different types of crops, a, a legume crop and a, a wheat or a barley or canola crop, um, is that a strategy that you can use so that you're not applying so much nitrogen? Yes, Scott, a uh, great question in there. And Clint can actually better answer that because he was working on a very great experiment, long-term experiment, where they were testing different cropping system, wheat on wheat compared to wheat followed by some kind of legume crop or perennials. Uh, Clint, do you want to ex- elaborate on that study? Yeah, so definitely crop rotation can help and what we found was, for example, yeah, wheat on wheat is the absolute worst. Wheat requires a lot of nitrogen, not just for yield, but also for high protein. On the other end of the scale would be legumes that essentially require no nitrogen. So the more legumes you can incorporate, the more perennial legumes that you can incorporate, the more, the less nitrogen that you're going to need and therefore the less acidification that will occur. So crop rotation is definitely a, a great way to have you have you looked at um permanent cropping situations and 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 if you don't have experience there, I know Rob uh spent a lot of time in California where there are a lot of, of permanent crops. Maybe he has an answer there as well. Clean, have you looked at into permanent crops? So by permanent crop I probably would call that like a perennial crop. So perennial alfalfa and grass mixed together is a great way to go. You don't have to add much uh, nitrogen to that. And those long roots that perennials have that most annual crops do not will scavenge nitrate, prevent nitrate from leaching. The more nitrate leaching you have, the more we see this acidification problem. Mm. As we talk about this, I just want to reinforce that this is a global situation. We're talking about some of the northern states in the United States now, but this process, this slow acidification happens in every soil in the world where ammonium fertilizers are being used. The difference is, in part, we call the buffering capacity or how well a soil can resist those changes when you add small amounts of acid. Some soils are well buffered and they can take a lot of abuse other soils are pretty fragile and they change their pH pretty quickly. And interesting, this really came to my attention first as you were talking about permanent crops under drip irrigation in California. With drip irrigation, we're adding probably urea ammonium nitrate is a common nitrogen fertilizer and it goes into the irrigation water through the dripper onto one point in the soil. And that happens day after day 
year after year until this orchard may be 25 years old. And you've been putting that acid-forming fertilizer in that same spot for 25 years. And the pH right under that emitter may have been pH 7. And then in 10 years now, it's pH 6. And now it may be dropping to pH 5 in a poorly buffered soil. So not only is that pH changing, but that is where most of the tree roots are. That's where they're getting the goodies, getting the water, getting the nutrients, and you're slowly poisoning those roots. So this applies in lots of situations, lots of cropping um, conditions, and it's something we really appreciate that Member and Clean have been sort of highlighting this issue that's of global concern. I'm going to pose this question to both of you, Manbir, you're first. <laughs> so you, pressure's on for you, Manbir. Are there any innovative um, or emerging technologies that can help us uh, either identify or or prevent or solve these, this issue? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, the soil acidity is not uniform across the field. So question comes, how can I sample sites specifically. Now, the gold standard technique, you can go for grid sampling, works great, but it's very labor and time intensive. So what you can do is we have been testing some other alternative technologies, for example, on the Go sensor that the various technologies usually have. They are usually equipped with the soil pH sensor. You can utilize that. That will give you data site specifically about the soil pH. And we have also tried remote sensing technology to identify low pH spots. Uh, Some of the data that we have collected from four different sites, uh, out of those four different sites, at least three of them have shown very good correlation of uh, soil pH and NDVI. NDVI is the greenness of the canopy. So those correlations give us kind of an indication that down the road, uh, with better models and more robust data set, we might be able to utilize that technology to identify soil acidity on larger areas with less time intensive technology. Um, with regards to mitigation, uh, again, liming works, it's great, but it's very expensive. And second thing, soil acidity is not uniform across the field. So it does make sense that we are not applying lime where it is not needed. One, it adds cost to your uh, budget sheet. And secondly, when you apply lime where it is not needed, it might be tweaking your soil chemistry in the wrong direction as well. So it makes sense to, along with doing site-specific monitoring of pH, maybe we should be going with variable rate lime applications as well. And Clint can explain a little bit more about variable rate uh, lime applicators that uh, he has observed with growers or on the field as well. Sure, yeah. So there are uniform spreaders that just put out, say, two tons per acre of lime across a field, and then there's variable rate At our local research center and two farmers that we've worked with, they've all purchased variable rate spreaders, recognizing that this problem is variable and they can save a lot of money by applying variably. So from my eyes, it works, you know, it works very well. You have to program your lime rates 
into the variable rate spreader and then zero tons will go in high pH zones, four tons will go in the lowest pH zones, for example, and then you can have as many zones as you want in between. It seems like a great way to go. That's fascinating that we have the technology that we can we can scan a field and know where those areas are and then plug that into a, a variable rate spreader and 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 apply only where needed. I think that is just super exciting. Where would someone go even to start looking for the appropriate lime they would use to fix those problems? Are all limestone sources the same? Uh so lime increases soil uh pH it's the ingredient in the lime, calcium carbonate. The carbonate is the main component that is causing that increase in soil pH. So I just wanted to put a note out here. When you are looking for products to increase your soil pH, if somebody is coming to you and telling you to apply, for example, calcium chloride, that won't increase your pH. It has to have some kind of carbonate or oxide in there. Calcium does not increase soil pH. That's the most important part when you start looking at liming products. So that causes confusion with gypsum sometimes. I've heard people say, well, I'll use gypsum, but that doesn't have any significant effect on soil pH. Correct. That is true. Uh, Gypsum will not increase soil pH. Maybe it will deliver calcium, which can help a little bit with your plant growth. But if you're looking to increase soil pH, you have to use calcium carbonate. It can be found in different products, could be sugar beet lime. It's a byproduct of sugar beet industry. It's free of cost. You just need to pay to deliver that sugar beet lime to your field. Uh, it's very effective. We did a study uh, in Montana. Uh, it's one-year data. We compared sugar beet lime, which is free of cost, egg lime, uh, which is about $55 per ton. And then we compared pelletized lime, which costs around $250 to $300 per ton. So we were interested in the question whether a freely available product can do as good as like costly products. And what we observed that actually beet lime works great. Uh, it can improve soil pH uh, better than expensive uh, lime products. Now, one thing I want to mention specifically for our study is we use beet lime and egg lime uh, as per the buffer test, we were trying pelletized lime because there are a lot of growers around that do not want to use tillage. As Rob mentioned, lime is a product that doesn't react very quickly. It doesn't move into the soil very fast. So one way is you put the lime and then you till it into the soil to increase that chemical reaction. But there are a lot of growers that just don't want to go for tillage. So we were trying to use pelletized lime like with seed. During seeding process, we placed the prill lime, but it didn't really work in our experiment. So that's something that we have observed in our one-year study uh, that sugar beet lime works great. It's freely available. You can go for that. 
Anything else to add, Clayton, in there? Yeah, Eglime, you know, still worked pretty well. It's, I think one reason Beeline worked as well or better than the Eglime is it's very fine. And so what comes out of this sugaring process is a very fine material. Some Eglime, and at least the Eglime we used, was a little coarser, so it's going to take longer uh, to react. In a, lo- in a lot of the country east of here, uh, east of Montana, people develop calcium piles, calcium carbonate piles outside their water treatment plants when they soften the water. And that calcium carbonate is used, my understanding, through a lot of the Midwest. So it's a, you know, it's really like a third or fourth alternative for many people east of the Rockies, just not here. And it's not interesting. Limestone, the sugar beet lime is common in their area, but limestone really is distributed widely around the world. It was laid down in marine sediments anciently and have now been uplifted and we're mining those. So you find them in the craziest places you'd never expect. But limestone is distributed pretty widely around the world, but it's still expensive to mine it, to crush it, and to haul it to those farmer fields. So There is definitely a cost to treating that acidity. Rob, anything else from you? Any final final thoughts or comments? No, this is a naturally occurring process. And this nitrification process, we call it, that ends up forming nitric acid in the soil. That nitrogen, that ammonia may come from fertilizer, but it comes from natural sources as well. This is We've accelerated it as we increase our nitrogen application rates on fields, but it is just something that has been part of nature for ever, I suppose, and it's essential for that nitrogen cycle. So anything we can do to manage that and to mitigate it, and I really like that MAP acronym that you described today to give us a framework of, of dealing with that, but I, I think we need to talk more about this issue. And it's in terms of long-term sustainability, it's going to be something that's going to affect our productivity globally. Clayton, you deal with uh, farmers on a, on a daily basis. For those that are listening to this podcast that made it to the end, <laughs> um, what, what advice would you give them? What do you think that there um, maybe is the most um, common misunderstanding or, or golden nugget that you can give them? I think the biggest golden nugget would be to scout or ask your crop advisor to scout for these problems. Look closely at soil test reports. Look over time and see if there's a trend towards more acidification. If every pH test report comes back at 7.9 to 8, you likely do not have a problem. But if they were 8 20 years ago and now you're starting to see 7s and 6s, you probably have fields that are down in the fives. And that's where I think you should be looking for problems and sampling. You know, that, that actually raises a question before I get to Manbir and her golden nugget for the, the, for the growers and their advisors. If I'm doing composite soil sampling and I'm looking at the overall trend, do we, is it possible to see that acidification um, over time in a composite soil sample? Or is it so... Uh, randomize that you, you may not even find it there? Yeah. Um, over the period, uh, as Clayton mentioned, if your earlier reports like 10 years ago were in sevens and now it's five, that's one indication for sure. But I think 
it's going to be a hit and miss kind of scenario. It all depends on where you are sampling. If you are just randomly sampling and hitting the high pH areas and maybe hitting only one or two low pH spots, it's not going to show up. Um, there was a great study done at Oklahoma State University by Brian Arnold, who had shown that even if your composite samples are showing pHs of around 6.5 or 6, you can have a large proportion of the field in fives. It just doesn't show up with mixing up the soil across the field. Good point. Good point. Well, thank you both for joining us. We'll include um, uh, links to your your uh, LinkedIn profiles so that someone has uh, some specific questions that they want to reach out to uh, talk with you with. Um, hopefully, hopefully that's a way best way to get a hold of you. Uh, we'll link that YouTube video uh, that that Klein produced, which is a, a really good overview. I think it's about nine ten minutes, maybe. Um, and and I learned a lot from that. So thank you for producing that that great resource for us. And Manbir, Klein, thanks for coming on and sharing your your knowledge and and wisdom and experiences with us. Thank you. No problem. Happy to do it. You've been listening to the Yara Crop Nutrition Podcast. For more information about our company, please visit us at www.yara.com or yara.us or for Canada, yaracanada.ca.